We lived! All right, so what Scott has in his happy hands here is our official, finally, building permit. Now, some of you are like, but we started doing stuff. Did we not have a permit? Like, going to old school Duval or something like that. That's not what we did. So we got our site development permit months ago. This was supposed to be like four weeks after, and it was... If you're gonna count, oh, yeah. if you're gonna count, I would say... Oh, do we have a happy microphone? I can yell. You can yell. All right. If you're gonna count, I would say it was uh, 11 weeks. 11 weeks. Yeah. So it took a little longer than anticipated, but now we have this. This is very exciting. We've been praying about this, working toward this for a long time and everything else. And so what this also means is officially tomorrow, they'll start driving pin pilings. They'll start working on all the foundational stuff. So the actual structure, they will finally start to develop as much as they've been developing the site. So we were very excited about that. With that, we're going to pray for this. But the other thing I want to do, just in a moment of just like human appreciation here and divine thankfulness, is uh, Scott has been a major part of this process. And yeah, no, honestly, give him a big hand. Sincerely, it's, it's a lot of work, it's a lot of emails, there's a lot of moving parts, and he's the one that fields those things day in, day out, week in, week out, and has just done a phenomenal job, taking a lot of stuff off my plate to worry about, so he's done all the worrying, so thank you for worrying for all of us, really, collectively. Uh, and so, uh, we just clap for him, but again, if you see him this morning, whatever else, just tell him thank you, because it really was a ton of effort, and it still will be. This whole project, especially for Scott, is just a lot of meetings and a lot of just making sure everything's going according to plan, and so it's been a big, big deal. He's done a great job. Our team's done a great job. And we're excited to see things really get officially underway and start picking up some steam. So all the way around, we're excited. So with that, I'm going to go ahead and pray for just thanking God for what he's done, uh, thanking God for Scott and all the work that Scott's put into this, uh, for all of you and your generosity, and then we'll just kind of leap into the topic of the day. So if you stick out here with me, that'd be awesome. We'll go ahead and pray. Jesus, I do. I really thank you. This has been for years, it's like, you know, I remember when this whole thing first started, and we're like, this is not doable. This is not going to be a thing. How could this be a thing? And then you have just faithfully opened door after door after door, and, and while, you know, we would love, like, all the comfort and ease in the world, it's like, no, we're not going to make this easy, and from that, you're going to appreciate it all the more, and we do. So we thank you that you have uh, provided this way, and you've made this permit possible after all of the moving parts, all of the, literally, I mean, just go back to 2017, when this first started with the first submittal to the city, and finally, after all that time having this document, we thank you for that. We thank you that you've provided the means to do this, the generosity of our people. And again, I thank you for just the way you've built Scott, just a man with bandwidth, to be able to uh, deal with all of this, shoulder all of this, and really bring intelligence and clarity to just what we needed. And so I thank you for that, for him, and for what you're doing. And I thank you for today, and that we get to explore your church in the broadest sense possible. We're exploring how you are working in the world in all sorts of contexts, and we thank you for that. We thank you that you are a God who's touching the planet with your grace and your love through your people. So Jesus, we love you. We thank you. We look to you today in your good and awesome name. Amen. One more time, just give him a big hand as well. Sincerely, a ton, a ton of work went into all of that. So uh, you'll notice I'm up here today with a, a big giant table thing that I always use, but also two stools. And here's the deal. Uh, so originally, you know, we did this kind of the 5 of July. You pick the topics we're going to deal with. I speak on those topics. And so there was all sorts of options. And then one of the options in there was denominations. And I knew who submitted this topic, all right? 
So one of our high school students just graduated, brilliant person, Morgan Abbott. I knew she submitted that because I also knew that she had done her senior capstone project on denominations, right? Looking at all the kind of major denominations of the world. Uh, she had done a ton of research, ton of footnotes, did all this different stuff. And so w when this first came up, I'm like, Morgan, can I have all of your research? Because you're more knowledgeable than I am at this point on all the, like I know some stuff better than others, but I don't know all of it. And she did all this stuff and she's like, yeah, you can totally use it. So she's like, I'll send it to you. And I'm like, that's awesome. And then a couple of days later, I'm like, I should drag her out there with me so I can interact with her about denominations. And so with that, would you all give a hand for Morgan Abbott? Yay! <laughs> I'm gonna give this to you. So uh, quickly, uh, you are uh, just recently graduated from uh, Northwest, and you are, are I graduated Northwest. high school. You're going to Northwest. <laughs> yeah. You graduated. Um, did I mention I'm a grandfather? Um, so I slip a little bit here and there. So anyway, so you graduated from Bear Creek. You're going to go to Northwest, and then you decided to do this as your capstone project. Yes. So real quick, so they can kind of get a sense of the scope in which you did this. Uh, the first thing probably for people to understand is that there are... Uh, this is a generic number, but it's close within the ballpark. There are 38,000 denominations uh, in the world. You're like, huh? And we're going to cover all 38,000 this morning. So yeah. I, I hope you packed a sack lunch. Now, I, I did the math. I figure if we could hit one denomination per second, we'll hit about 6% of the total denominations. So you ready for a speed round? Let's do it. All right, cool. Uh, <laughs> Obviously, we're not going to be able to do that. But here's what's cool. Why don't you just briefly share, like, what you did? Like, you didn't just simply crack books and look at different denominations. What did you do to try to put this together? So for my high school project, I did four different things. I researched the church doctrine on my own. I went to the different church denomination services every Sunday. I interviewed each of the pastors, and then I also interviewed members of the church congregation. So there was a lot of research that went into figuring out the doctrine of the church denominations. That's pretty thorough, right? Like, so, and I'm curious, in that, were there some places where you walked in and you're like, whoa, this is weird? Yes, definitely. <laughs> so what, what was the one that you went, this is the most fish out of water I've ever felt going into church? The Eastern Orthodox Church was very, very different. Can yeah. we talk about it? In a minute. Okay. Yeah, because you're very excited about this. Because you and I both have this warm heart for something that feels weird to us, like the Eastern Orthodox Church. So I appreciated that and everything else. So I want to give you the ground rules of how we're kind of approaching this today, because I think sometimes when we get into this topic, it's like, hey, what are the good and bad of all the different things? And my, and this is just my personal opinion. So again, you know, I'm going to step away and just say. Matt's personal opinion is uh, that when you look at denominations, there's kind of this reality that there's going to be some good and there's going to be some bad. There's going to be maybe at times be a little bit more bad than good or a little bit more good than bad. But we didn't want to kind of approach it that way. I certainly didn't want to. But rather, I wanted to kind of see that, you know what, as Jesus is working in his church, uh, he's working through human beings that are going to make mistakes. They're going to camp on one thing and overlook another thing. And that's going to be true to kind of all different Christians because we all have the same book, right? Now, some of us, as we're going to learn, maybe have a few more things in their book than others, right? It's kind of the Eastern Orthodox or the Catholics do versus the Protestants. Um, but we're all wrestling with God's word. And I think wrestling is always the right word. And so with that, you're going to have these different flavors. And so with that, we kind of took it like literally like ice cream, all right? Like God's church is like Baskin Robbins sometimes. 
and they're gonna have some different flavor elements. And in that, it's kind of okay. Not that I'm trying to excuse everything or say everything is just automatically right, but we're acknowledging that for 2,000 years, there has been this people with the right heart, right intention, trying to wrestle with God's word and understand how to apply it to any given time or situation. And we're a part of that history, that development. And so even some of the groups we're gonna look at, we're gonna be like, they're the ones that pioneered our belief system and they're in that space, there was still some things where they kind of pushed where you're like, I don't know if that's always the healthiest thing, but hey, that's a part of our heritage. So that's kind of the spirit in which we're approaching some of this. So we're kind of just gonna deal with the what makes them unique, What's something about them that you found really interesting or something that encouraged you? And then you get kind of a sense of the different flavors. That's really the spirit of everything today. And so we're going to kind of approach it that way. Does that sound good to you? And I'm not trying to be judgmental of the other denominations. I'm just giving you information as to the best of my capabilities. Yes, she's, she's disimpassioned, if you will. So uh, that's the heart behind. But this, and what's great too, is that actually later today in our notes in the app, because there's notes in the app today, but later today, there's going to be a link in there that gives you access to her actual presentation as far as the, the hard copy stuff. In fact, I have part of a copy of it right here. Very fancy that she did. And it gives you just their doctrine, their belief system, an overview of every one of the different groups. Because if you're like, I don't know what Anglicans believe, well, you can look in here and find out what Anglicans believe. It's really kind of cool. Uh, so anyway, how we're going to start here is go with the big idea first, all right? So we're going to start with the top three biggest branches of the Christian tradition. So Christianity is about 2.5 billion people total on the globe. The oldest church of all of the Christian kind of denominations, and if you're not familiar with the word denomination, it just means an autonomous Christian sect or group. Uh, literally means to number. So people that have numbered themselves under a label or a doctrinal ideology of some kind, that's denomination. The oldest of all of them are the Eastern Orthodox Church. So uh, it was established pretty much in the first century, uh, believed to be under James, the brother of Jesus, and their Bible is a little bit bigger than everybody else's because they kind of include more things in their, and depending on which Eastern Orthodox or Orthodox Church, they kind of have bigger or smaller Bibles, depending. Um, also, kind of as a note, it says Judaism up there, 24 Old Testament books, zero New Testament. Good Jewish people do not hold to the New Testament. And as to the Old Testament, the 12 prophets of the Old Testament, the back end of your Bible, they roll those into one book. So even though we would all have basically the same number of Old Testament, you know, there would be a familiarity between all the groups. Some have more, but all would have the same starting number. The Jewish population doesn't see those as 12 books. It's the book of the 12. So that's why the number's a little different there. But Eastern Orthodox has a very big Bible, and their size is about 260 million kind of globally right now. So with all of that said, what's the thing where you go, this is what kind of sets them apart as unique as an institution? So the Eastern Orthodox Church has a lot of differences compared to like other churches that we know of today. If you go to an Eastern Orthodox Church, you will notice immediately that it is unlike any church that you have ever been to before. And there are a couple of different reasons why this is the case. Um, the first one is their worship. So when they do worship, they do it a cappella. They don't have instruments, they don't have a band. They're just singing with their voices. And in the back, there's a choir to support their music. And they do 
nervous because they're afraid that the music might be distracting or because it would be overpowering to the words. So the reason why they have worship being a cappella has a deeper meaning behind it. And that's something unique to the Eastern Orthodox Church. Everything that they do has a deeper meaning or a symbol behind it. So they also make the sign of the cross all the time at the church. Like whenever the Holy Spirit is mentioned, they do the sign of the cross. And that's also typical at other traditional churches, but it's even more prominent at the Eastern Orthodox Church. They also prostrate in the church, which means they fall down to the floor and they kneel down three times in honor of Christ. Another thing very unique to them is their church is very modest. Um, men are only allowed to wear pants, they can't wear shorts, and women have to wear skirts and hair doilies, so like a scarf to cover their hair, uh, which reflects how important modesty is for them for a Sunday service. Another unique aspect of their service is candles. So when you walk into their church at the front where the stage is, they have a whole bunch of candles and every individual goes up to light a candle. Now the candles represent three different things. The first thing is our fire or our passion for Christ. The second thing is Christ's uh, fire against sin and how he destroys sin. And then the third thing is how it is like the light of the truth illuminating our world. So again, there's symbolism behind the candles, which demonstrates how Orthodox Christians have a deeper meaning with everything that they do. And lastly, this is a pretty odd aspect of the Orthodox Church. Um, Christians there venerate saints by going up to the iconography, which are pictures, and they kiss the pictures in the saints or the saints in the pictures. Now this is because Orthodox believe that is the highest form of veneration for Christ. They believe Christ is truly present there with them during the service. And so the highest honor is for them to kiss Christ. So that's a very unique aspect to the church. At first, I was confused when I saw that. Other people Did you go up and kiss anything? I didn't. All right, just No. <laughs> I thought about it, but <laughs> I wasn't quite sure how to do it. <laughs> <laughs> that's exactly why I'd feel, so. Yeah, but that's also why I like the Orthodox Church a lot. They're very theologically deep individuals. When I had conversations with them, um, one word was spoken with five words. So they say as much as they can, and they... Uh, are very the theologically deep in that way. So did that surprise you that like, because it, it felt so foreign, but in the end you went like, hey, here, here's this thing that I found deeper about them that I didn't know that, like, how did that shape you in some way? Did you think like, oh, maybe I'm too, uh, this is a terrible word, like, but maybe my, my practice is more flippant mm -hmm. than it should be or more too casual? I mean, did you find that anything in you kind of shifted like, oh, I should maybe be a little bit more thoughtful about some of this? Yes, yeah, and I wasn't expecting them to be so theologically deep because it was so weird and different <laughs> for me that I wasn't expecting that. But it turns out, even though they were pretty different from how I typically practice Christianity, they still had so much depth to what they believe. Hmm. That's awesome. So, so that's Eastern Orthodox, oldest tradition there is on the planet of the Christian traditions. Next then is the Roman Catholic Church, the Western Church. So they were kind of unified for a while. They eventually went through a division, right? And so you got the Eastern and Western Church. Uh, first of all, what generated the division between the East and the West? Why did the Catholics and Eastern Orthodox sort of separate? What would you say was kind of the central theme there? So the Catholics added a phrase to the Nicene Creed known as the Filioque Clause. And this is the saying that the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. The and the Son is the filioque clause. When the Catholics added that to the Nicene Creed, the Eastern Orthodox were unaware of this. So when they found out that Catholics did that kind of behind their back, the Orthodox really disliked the filioque clause. 
Their reasoning behind that was because the saying that the Holy Spirit proceeded from the Father and the Son made the Holy Spirit seem like it was subordinate to the Son, which isn't the case. But then the Catholics argued that they added the filioque clause because it added a dimension to the Trinity and how the Trinity should be viewed. So they split because of just the three-word disagreement, the filioque clause. That's all it takes, three words. All right. Yeah, and so they broke off and everything else and became, became what we know more because we're not as familiar with the Eastern Orthodox Church because it's not quite our history in the same way, but we understand the Catholic Church because this is sort of, you know, where we come from in some ways. So what is unique then about the Catholic Church? So the Catholic Church is the second branch of Christianity, and they have a whole lot of unique aspects to them. So there are four points of their doctrine that I wanted to talk about. The first one is that Catholics venerate uh, the Saint Mary. They used to believe that Mary was more divine than Christ, that she was semi-divine. That was an old doctrine that Catholics had, but then at the Second Vatican Council, Catholics removed that doctrine. So now they still pray to Mary and worship her as a saint, but they don't worship her like as though she is Christ or God. So they still venerate her uh, and they pray to her, but they don't full-on worship her. The second thing is papal supremacy. That's very unique to the Catholic Church. Um, but Catholic supremacy isn't actually used very often. In fact, it's only been used twice, whereas most people think it's been used like more frequently. Like the Pope's frequently. doing it every Thursday. Right, yeah. right. So, and yeah. papal supremacy is when the Pope has supreme authority over the theology that he's talking about, and it has to be taken as, like, the final word. Mm. But it's not used, like, ever, which mm. is interesting. Yeah. The third thing is Catholics believe in purgatory, uh, and this doctrine is that once a Christian dies, then they go to a holding place, uh, and they have to wait until they receive more justification or sanctification, and then they can go to heaven. So purgatory is debated and argued in the realm of Christianity, but Catholics get it from the book of Maccabees, which was originally in the Bible, but then removed by the Protestants during the Protestant Reformation. And so that's kind of where they centered that for the most part. And then was there one other side from, I don't remember, you said four, so there was... Yeah, so the last thing okay, cool. is penance and indulgences. Uh, this is something that surprised me. Catholics still practice this. So once an individual goes to confession and absolution, where they confess their sins, and then they receive absolution from the Father, then the Father gives them a penance. And a penance is some good work or a good deed to constitute for their sin that they committed. So it could be almsgiving, or worship or prayer. If the Christian doesn't want to do the penance, then they can pay to do an indulgence, or they can do an indulgence anyway, and it's used to remove the residuals of the sin. There you go. So this is their four hallmarks right there. So another thing to understand about the Catholic Church is when it comes to authority is they see two equal authorities. So they see the church as an authority, and they see scripture as an authority. And those are just, like, they hold them in equal standing kind of thing. And kind of they have the reasons for it. They kind of look and say, before there was the Bible formed as canon or agreed upon as canon, there was a church. So the church is kind of the cradle that holds the scriptures in that sense. So that's why they hold to this equal authority that we will see with Protestants. We kind of go a different route because of that. But in all of that, what was the thing that when you explored kind of Catholicism where you went like, hey, for all the things that I might disagree with or struggle with, what's something that you went like, hey, I appreciated that? My favorite thing about the Catholics is so all the reverence that they have for Christ. They really, really worship him. And then another thing that contributes to that is all the beauty that they have within the church. So their art or their cathedrals, it definitely adds to how much reverence and honor that they give to Christ. 
and so, and you went to a Catholic church. Was that, did that feel more familiar to you? Or did you go like, still, I'm not sure what to do. I need like a Cliff Notes version of when to sit, when to stand, when to sit, when to stand, when to sit, when to stand. Uh, it was difficult for me. Yeah. I think the more you go to mass or a traditional service, the more you get used to it. You'll get the hang of it. Yeah, that's awesome. So next, it's our family line here, the Protestants. All right. So this is where the denominations really go like a tree, you know, with just limbs everywhere, right? So this is kind of the way we develop. But give us a generic view of kind of how the Protestants came into play and what's unique about the Protestants. So the Protestants are the third branch of Christianity. There's Catholics, Orthodox, and Protestants. How they began was in 1517, there was a certain monk who began protesting the Catholic Church. And in particular, he was protesting indulgences and papal supremacy. Uh, and that monk is known as Martin Luther. <laughs> yeah, and so he is a Catholic. He is a guy that actually believes in purgatory at the time says, but the indulgences is taking advantage of people, and we need to take a stand. So it starts there, but then within some span of time, it kind of grows, and it's more than just, hey, I don't like this idea of indulgences, and I don't like the way the, the Pope is wielding authority. I think this is about the very essence of the gospel. It's kind of what it came down to for him, right? So he's like, salvation is not by grace plus effort working together to bring justification. It's rather just by grace through faith alone. That seems to be kind of the big, this was the break, which is why then kind of ever since then the Catholic Church was really had issues with the Protestants. Protestants had issues with the Catholics, right? That's kind of the essence of that divide between the Protestants and Catholics. Yeah, that's a huge distinctive between the Protestants and the Catholics because Catholics believe that your salvation comes by faith and works, whereas Protestants believe in sola fide, which means faith alone. Right. So if you kind of picture the diagram in your head, uh, the Protestants will say at the moment you're saved, you are justified. You're declared just in the sight of God, and then you're sanctified after that. The Catholics would say at the moment you're saved, you start a process of justification in which you're not fully declared just in the sight of God until you've gone through a process where grace and your efforts working together produce a state of justification. So they put it on different ends of kind of the slide scale. And, the, and then how that plays out, it has its own dynamics or whatever else. And so that's kind of the Protestant thing. So then Protestants start up, uh, and they have a real core distinctive of it's not the authority of the church, it's the authority of the scriptures. And so they're going to camp on that more and say, hey, we're going to make sure that everybody understands scripture alone is the deciding authoritative factor in all of that. Now that breaks into our, we, we pick seven, I think, of the 38,000, we pick seven. All right, so, um, but... It's kind of some generic areas. And the first, because it's Martin Luther, it starts with Lutheranism. All right, so if you look at the different breakdowns over the last 500 years, kind of the first distinctive group would be the group that Luther started and his kind of breakaway group. Uh, so tell us a little bit about Lutherans. So in 1517, after he posted the 95 Thesis on the doors of the Wittenberg Castle, um, the Catholics were enraged by this. They didn't want uh, there to be any differences or like for people to be uh, protesting what they believed. And so Luther and the Catholics sent a series of letters arguing their positions and their sides. And then this culminated in the Diet of Worms in 1521. Which is a great name, the Diet of Worms. If you're going to have a big like court case, the Diet worms. of Worms. All right, so. Yeah, and in that, Martin Luther was excommunicated from the church, and he became an outlaw. As a result of this, um, Lutheranism began. Martin Luther never wanted a whole Luther denomination, but it still arose by his followers in the end. And then, so people understand too, like, to talk about Lutheranism is not as simple as all Lutherans are created equal, right? So there's some 
that are very, very conservative, and there's some that are very, very progressive. So the way it's developed since its start, as opposed to now, is you might have a Lutheran church that is very, very, again, conservative in its theology, all the way to a Lutheran church that's very, very progressive or liberal in its theology. So even it has fractured over the course of time, too, and has distinct flavors. So when you hear, like, oh, it's a Lutheran church, you almost have to inquire more to say, well, which kind of Lutheran church? What would you say is the biggest distinction, though, just generically, of a, of a Lutheran background? Uh, so there are two key things, and they're about baptism and communion. The first thing is that uh, Lutherans baptize infants, and they believe when you are baptized, you receive gifts from the Holy Spirit, such as salvation or forgiveness or acceptance into Christ's family. And then for communion, uh, Lutherans practice a process called sacramental union. And this is where the bread and wine maintain their physicality. They're still bread and wine, but then additionally, Christ is there physically present in a way somehow that we do not understand. Right, which isn't, it's kind of like a cousin to the Catholic view of transubstantiation where Christ is in the elements more. They kind of create a little bit more mystery in there, but still has some connection to it. Just a little bit more nondescript, would you say? Yes. Yes, all right, perfect. That's a good answer. Yes, straight up. So, um, and another interesting thing about just kind of understanding like the, you know, I kind of talked about how they, everybody, as we've evolved over the course of time as a Christian tradition, um, that there were things in there that were good, and there were things in there you're like, like if I were a leader in Luther's world, he would actually have me executed. Um, because I baptize adults and don't baptize babies. So, like, he actually pushed for legislation that made it an executable offense to baptize adults that had already been baptized as babies. So, probably not the healthiest thing for today. Um, Call it crazy, uh, which is why when we even talk about in a little while Anabaptists, many of them were executed under the kind of the Lutherans because they were baptizing adults who had been baptized as babies and they found it to be a capital offense. And so it's interesting how some of these things, we get kind of more healthy over the course of time. We're not killing people over baptism. That seems like a healthy thing. So uh, yeah, so that's kind of the Lutheran thing. Next, we got what? Anglican and from this I'll say Episcopalian. So yeah. Yeah, so the Anglicans began just 15 years after the Protestant Reformation from Martin Luther. So in 1533, King Henry VIII wanted to divorce his wife, Catherine of Aragon, but the Pope wouldn't let him divorce his wife. And so King Henry VIII decided to make his own church, and it is known as the Church of... <laughs> it's, it's the Church of England, or also known as the Anglican Church. So then... King Henry VIII teamed up with a young theologian known as Thomas Cranmer, and together they made the Anglican Church. So Cranmer used uh, the mass style from the Catholic Church while adding Protestant aspects from the Lutheran denomination, and then that's how he made Anglicanism. It's called the Via Mita because he had both aspects of the Protestants and the Catholics combined into one church. And so when you go to a church in the Church of England today, it feels very Catholic. Even though its theology would not be, its environment is very much that way. So like when we were over there a few weeks ago, I'm like, man, these all feel like Catholic environments. And I'm like, yeah, no, don't say that. You'll get in trouble. So um, It is very similar. Like yeah. even the words that they use are yeah. the same. Yeah, for sure. So what was something about maybe the Anglican background, at least where you went like, hey, I appreciate that. I really liked how ecumenical the Anglicans were. Ecumenical means the unity of the church, and so right now the church is fractured into a gazillion different denominations, which can be seen as problematic because the church, the original intention was for the church to be unified in one. So Anglicans have done a lot to seek to unify the church. 
One of the ways that they do that is through ecumenical dialogues, which is a way where the Anglican Church will team up with another denomination and talk about doctrine. So they've done that with the Catholic Church, and they've done that with Baptists or Lutherans, and that's a great way to seek the unity of the church. Yeah, no, it's really kind of fascinating. And again, kind of going back to there's bandwidth between the groups, Anglicans would probably, I'm going to say this very generically, but generically would be more on the conservative theological side. Episcopalians would be generally more on the liberal theological side. So again, you see where even though they're the same, quote, flavor, they're also distinctly different flavors within their own tradition. So next, we're going to make our friend Scott Thompson very happy here. The Presbyterians. Scott is a Presbyterian through and through. All right. Tell us about the Presbyterians. So Presbyterians began by a man named John Knox. He very violently protested the Catholic Church. After a series of events, this resulted in the Scots Confession, and that is one of the confessions that uh, Presbyterians use. So they do not only confess the Nicene Creed and the Apostles' Creed, they confess nine other confessions as well. And then this is found in the Book of Confessions. So along with that, Presbyterians have the Book of Order. And what makes Presbyterians so unique is how they structure the authority of their church. So a group of elders is called a Presbyteriate, and the Presbyteriate is where Presbyterians get their name because their authority comes from all the church elders. So with this, what did you like about Presbyterians? That was the question I had for you, Matt. Ah! So you should answer. Well, I'm Scottish. John Knox is Scottish. I went to St. Giles Cathedral and put my Kraken hat on his statue, <laughs> which security didn't think was cute. Um, I thought it was adorable. So, uh, but no, I, you know, what I like about it is that there is um, the bandwidth of Presbyterians. Again, like all of these different things, they're, you know, we kind of think, well, Presbyterians are X. I'm like, well, they're X, Y, and Z. And I like the fact that they want to wrestle. And I like their ideas around eldership in particular. I like the idea of, I mean, I still prefer kind of a plurality of eldership, which is what the higher thing kind of achieves in Presbyterian ranks. Uh, and the fact that it is that plurality, I think, brings something healthy and a oneness of mind, oneness of spirit when you exercise that, which is kind of why we use that pattern here as a church, borrowing from the Presbyterian background a little bit. So how about that? Is that good? That's good. Okay, just want to make sure. So yeah, I like that. But again, the Presbyterians, it's like everything else. You've got liberal factions, you've got conservative factions, and you've got stuff in between. So all of these things really have a lot of bandwidth between them when you talk about the different groups. Next, let's talk about, is it Methodists? Yes. Methodists, all right, nice. Let's talk Methodists. So in the 18th century, there was a man called John Wesley who was practicing to become an Anglican pastor in the American colonies. Once he began his career, uh, preaching as a father wasn't going very well for him. And then he became a missionary to Native Americans, but that also wasn't going very well for him. So pretty distraught, John Wesley decided to go back to England where he grew up. At a church service, someone was reading the Book of Romans, and Wesley felt a strange warming in his heart. After this, Wesley realized, oh, it's time to reform the church. And so what he desired to do was to create small groups of individuals uh, who were commonly poor, uh, and for those individuals to build each other up and to encourage one another. Now, Wesley was very methodical in how he practiced Christianity. He had a very strict and rigid uh, series of what he did every single day. And so his friends started calling him a Methodist, which is where <laughs> Methodism comes from. So he was methodical. Yes. So he gets, his nickname was Methodist. Yes. So that became the church enterprise from there. Mm -hmm. Dig it. All right. So what is unique about Methodist? You go like, this is their kind of unique distinctive. 
they really emphasize God's grace. Uh, a lot of things that they practice have Which is weird for a dude grace. that was methodical that he emphasized yeah. grace, right? Yeah, yeah, kind of, yeah, it's right, weird a little, but yeah. keep going. I'm sorry, I interrupted you. So a means of grace is a visible way of seeing something invisible, and they typically uh, can like add that to baptism or communion because it's a visible way of seeing something invisible. Uh, you should talk about spiritual perfection. Yes, this is my favorite topic in yeah. the Methodist rank. So um, they believe, like, kind of their uniqueness, because every one of these groups has, like, this one theological, like, thing that drives their flavor to some degree. And so within Methodism, they believe in this thing called entire sanctification. So when John Wesley is looking in particular at, like, First John that we just went through as a church, he looks at that and says, perfect love casts out fear. And there's these discussions about perfect love, and if you're truly a believer, you will love perfectly. And so from that, he really believed that a person in this life could reach a state of perfection. And so as a believer, if you were methodical enough, uh, if you were holy enough, and if you were really practicing just reckless love, in essence, you could reach a state of being perfect in this life, and you will be loving people perfectly. So that was kind of the idea there. Now, when you quiz a modern day, like Nazarene or Methodist or anybody that comes from the Wesleyan tradition, they'll kind of amend that a little bit, and they'll say, well, everybody can love perfectly to the degree that you can perfectly love. I'm like, I like that. All right. Um, so they'll say, like, for example, a six-year-old that draws a picture of an airplane versus an engineer, an aeronautical engineer that draws a picture of an airplane, to the degree that both do it to the best of their ability, that would be perfect, right? So they'd say, like, you might be loving like a six-year-old, and you might be loving like a professional. Um, and so that's the way they kind of look at that, but they believe in this idea of perfectionism. Some would go off the rails and say, I'm perfect in every way, and I'm like, I don't think you are. I gotta break the news to you. Um, but that, that's kind of their unique thing, is they believe that you can reach a state of perfection somehow in this life. And that then bred the next group in a strange sort of way, which is the Pentecostals. So what about the Pentecostals? So in the 20th century at Bethel Bible College, there was a professor uh, who asked his students to go out and pray. And so the students prayed. One of them came back to the professor and said, I have the ability to speak in tongues. And then more of the students were coming back and saying, I can speak in tongues. So the professor then believed that to be fully baptized by the Holy Spirit, you have to speak in tongues. Um, from there, Pentecostal individuals like became a huge thing. There was a huge movement, but they just wanted to reform the church. They didn't want to create a whole new denomination. So when they went to more traditional churches, the traditional churches weren't interested in hearing the Pentecostal movement, and so the Pentecostals were forced to create their own churches, which is then where the Pentecostal movement became their own denomination. Right, and so to kind of understand how there was a relationship. So the Methodist said the second blessing of the Holy Spirit is you can become perfect. That was the proof of the second blessing of what the Spirit does in a person's life. The Pentecostals, being out of kind of a Methodist background in some ways, they said, no, we think the second blessing is tongues. So this is where they have kind of a cousin relationship, right? So they're, they're like second cousins in some ways comparatively or whatever else. Um, what's interesting about Pentecostals, like she said, they've only been around a short period of time, but they double the amount of evangelicals in the world today. So there's roughly over 500 million Pentecostals uh, in just over 100 years. I mean, it's pretty impressive that way, just how much it's inflated around the world over the course of time. I'm curious, since they have a relationship, what is something about Methodism and Pentecostalism in any way that you went, I appreciate that about them. So 
for Methodism, one thing I appreciated about their church is again how methodical they are. Uh, they really integrate small groups into their church, which is pretty typical for most churches nowadays. Uh, but that's a great way to connect with a smaller group of people and to share more of your life experiences with those people so that you have a smaller community within the family of the church. So that's something I appreciated about Methodism. For Pentecostals, their worship is amazing. I <laughs> love it. Um, if you haven't gone to a Pentecostal worship service before, you should totally go. There are a ton at Northwest University. Um, but they bring so much joy and liveliness to their music uh, that you can quite literally feel the presence of the Holy Spirit there with you because of how profound that it is. Now, a lot of people uh, judge that their worship is entertainment, and it can be at times, uh, so we have to have this discretion not to be entertained by it and to actually be worshiping Christ during the worship service. Mm -hmm. No, that's awesome. So, and we're doing good. We've only got two left. We're going to be more than good on our time right here. So next, let's deal with our credo Antibaptist Baptists. Uh, I threw a bunch of stuff in there, but we'll just stick with kind of the Baptist side of it. So what did you learn about the Baptists? So the, mo the most unique aspect of the Baptist denomination is baptism. <laughs> this is because they believe in adult baptism or believer's baptism, which is different from a lot of the more traditional churches. Believer's baptism is when you confess that you have been saved and then you make a decision to be baptized sometime later in your life. And so what's interesting about this group is that, you know, we have up here Anabaptists and then we have Baptists and again, the, the distinctive of all of those is, again, this idea that you make a confession of faith and then you're baptized. That's really kind of the pattern of our church as well. Um, but what is interesting is those Anabaptists were massively persecuted in the history of the church because of that idea. So even this idea of kind of believer's baptism as we understand it was not necessarily a welcome part of much of Christian tradition. I think it was true to the early church. It was certainly true to the New Testament and then kind of made a resurgence in the latter portion of kind of the 2,000 years of the church. Um, but also the other thing about Anabaptists that's sort of unique is they're like Mennonites, that kind of group. Quakers are kind of a derivative of that in some ways, uh, but very pacifistic. So you've got some that are very pacifist-oriented, and then you have others that are more activist-oriented, or maybe they're activists but in a pacifistic way. There's all sorts of different breeds in there. And also, Baptists are a little bit like, uh, remember that scene in Forrest Gump, Bubba Gump Shrimp? And he's talking about, you know, you can have this kind of shrimp and this kind of shrimp and this kind of, well, that's kind of Baptist. There's Reformed Baptists and Regular Baptists and American Baptists and Southern Baptists. There's all kinds of Baptists in there, right? And Baptists. Um, but again, their central thing is, man, you confess Christ and then you're baptized and that kind of thing. So what did you appreciate about the Baptists? Their church was very welcoming when I went. I mean, that was the case for a lot of the different churches, uh, but the pastor in particular, when I visited their church service, he was just so excited about who I was and my passion for church denominations, and that was something I appreciated a lot. That's awesome. Now, did you go to a Southern Baptist, American Baptist? Do you know what kind of Baptist you went to? It was a Baptist church. <laughs> <laughs> Good enough. You know what? They're baptizing adults. That's what counts. All right. So good enough for me. So, and then last, lastly, lastly is non-denominational us, those who refuse to be counted. Yes, uh, that's what non-denominational means. We're not counted in that sense, or we're not a part of a broader affiliation or a group. There's a certain level of independence. What did you learn about the non-denominational kind of environment? 
So the non-denominational church began with a man named Barton Stone. He was a Presbyterian pastor, uh, but then he realized that he disliked how much man-made tradition was in the church, and so he sought to create a church that was purely biblical and did not have man-made tradition in it. And so the non-denominational movement began, and that is where the church came from. So for all denom non-denominational churches, there is no centralized doctrine uh, and the pastor teaches the fundamentals of the faith. They do not require you to have some strict position on doctrine, uh, but that you have, like, that you are a Christian and you believe in the primary doctrine. So it's kind of like general orthodoxy is what holds that together, and then there may be all these extension things, because again, there's kind of flavors in non-denominational, anything from very seeker-oriented to where you wouldn't be sure exactly what their doctrinal distinctives are, all the way to if you're familiar with like a John MacArthur, that church is actually a non-denominational church, but very fundamentalist in its orientation, so very particular on all sorts of different doctrinal issues and sub-issues and sub-sub-issues, so like everything, there is bandwidth even in kind of the non-denominational ranks. And it kind of depends on which non-denominational church you're kind of approaching. So with that, what was something in the non-denominational space you went like, hey, I appreciate that? Uh, this was also similar to the Methodist church, the Baptist mm. church, one of them. The non-denominational church is very welcoming and inviting. And this is because it allows any Christian from any background into their church. So whether you're a Lutheran or a Baptist or a Presbyterian, you can come to a non-denominational church because it welcomes everyone. And especially like it comes into things like communion because you found that some churches not everybody who walks in can take communion It's very strict like unless you're a member of that church You can't do communion where at our church we say hey This is for believers if you're not a believer if you don't follow Jesus just let this go by This is a commemoration that we do as Christians for Christ But we call that an open table which means we don't we don't frankly police it by saying members only But you found some environments that are very much members only in that space, right? So uh, when that happened did you ever like did you ever attempt any communion in any place that was a closed table and then you found like, oh, I'm not supposed to be here right now? No, but I did have to ask in advance whether or not I could take communion or not because mm -hmm. I didn't want to impose myself. And then if it was closed communion for the members of that church to get mad at me. So I had to figure that out before I took communion. <laughs> You're like, I will do some homework in advance. Yes. It's perfect. That's good. So from this whole project, I mean, you looked at all sorts of stuff. You literally went and looked people in the eye. You talked to them about their faith tradition. Because I think sometimes we tend to read a criticism of another group before we actually go and just talk to the group and find out what they really think, really believe, what they really are like. Uh, your ultimate walk away, what, what was the thing where you went like, hey, this is what I appreciated about this process for me? I know that's a big question. Um, what I appreciated most for myself is now I have like a very, very broad range of all of the Christian denominations. Before I had a very small, centralized, narrow view of the Christian faith, but now that I have researched all of these different denominations and know what they believe, like I can understand and relate to a bunch of different Christians and the doctrine they believe in, which I think is important for all of us not to be so like narrow-minded on what we believe for faith. Well, that is true, but for us to also uh, be able to listen and talk to other people like other Christians. Yeah, no, I think that's true because, you know, I, I've always been very open that I probably have a much— I, I kind of take the, the earliest creeds of Christianity and say that's Christianity. If you hold to that, that's Christianity, and then we have all this diversity. And again, I think there's some things in the diversity I don't agree with, some things I think are broken, maybe even some things I think are categorically wrong with inside of things. But this idea of saying, hey, God's family is, is very vast— and he uses his family to reach people in all sorts of different contexts and ways that I can't fathom. And there are, what I love even about being in the valley 
is that there are churches in our community that redemption will never be the right flavor for them. And I'm really thankful that there's maybe a flavor that does fit them and can reach them in a way that maybe we can't. And that excites me. I just like the fact that Christ Church is much bigger than that. And so that was even why our reading was what it was this morning out of Ephesians. There's one faith, one Lord, one church, one baptism. Like, God is at work in the world in all sorts of diverse ways. And he has been for 2,000 years through very fallible people. Like, again, we're Protestants, but kind of our founder would kill my kind today. And I'm grateful that I'm not running around with Martin Luther nowadays. But I'm grateful for also what he did and what he brought to the table and how it kind of moved things forward for us as well. So it's really kind of cool to see it that way. So Morgan, I'm going to thank you for your homework. I'm going to thank you for what you did for your project and being willing to be on the hot seat yeah, and just kind of share with us. So if you guys would give Morgan a hand, because that's... It's, it's a big deal to like, hey, I'm going to put you on the hot seat and have you answer all these questions for us. It's going to be great. All right. So, uh, but if you're interested in more, again, we're going to have this on the app later today inside the uh, tile for the notes. So uh, you can kind of just peruse that if you'd like, but it's kind of a fun resource there. And then other than that, I'm going to go ahead and just pray, close things out, and then uh, you and I can scoot off and we'll have a final worship song. Sound cool? All right. Dig it. Jesus, I, I really do. I thank you for the fact that You've given us your word, and you've given us your spirit, and you've given us your church, and in our uh, quest to honor you, and to wrestle with your truth, and to be guided by your spirit, what you've produced in that is variety of your church. And uh, in that, we know that there is incompleteness. We know that there is our own struggle and question and wrestle. But in there, I also see beauty. Also, I see the, the presentation of your liberation through the gospel, your good message, and how it brings us back into relationship with you. A relationship lost in Eden is restored through you, Jesus and so even this morning, if there's anybody here that's like, I don't follow Jesus, or anybody watching online, I don't follow Jesus, this is your day where you can say, Jesus, I have gone my own way, done my own thing, I've sinned against you, I've plotted my own path, but I want you to be the one that governs and rules and guides my life. You make that your prayer and your way. He hears you, brings you into the family, and a man, we would love to know you made that decision. I'll be out front today. If you made that decision, would love to hear from you on that. There's a tile on our app. You can let us know you made that decision as well, because that's the most important decision in this whole conversation today following Christ right and then you're connected to his body of believers Jesus I thank you that you've left your church in this world to make much of you and to present your message of liberation freedom and forgiveness so we love you we thank you and we praise you in your good 